but it used to be that the big eat the small, but now it's the fast that eat the slow. That ability to adapt in real time is more valuable than ever and has been certainly highlighted by COVID. Welcome, Allison. Thank you so much for taking time to have a chat with me about becoming an investor. So maybe we'll start with the beginning. Um, how did you get started? What were you doing before being an investor? Well, it's a long road to look back, I suppose. Um, I started my career in finance, but not necessarily because I wanted to be an investor. I was more just interested in being financially independent, building a career where I could do that, being around smart people, um, and spending time internationally. So I ended up um, interning at Goldman Sachs and then working there full-time after graduation. And I was there in the middle of the financial crisis, which seems like a less important crisis now that we're living through this one. But at the time, it felt like a really big deal. Um, and, and I was seeing how quickly both policy and technology were changing the business at Goldman in real time. And it was clear to me that if I wanted to build a long-term successful career, I needed to be in technology because that's what was taking all of the jobs <laughs> around me, as well as reducing the salaries of the jobs that weren't being eliminated. So I ended up joining General Assembly, which was at the time a startup. It was only about 10 people in New York and everybody told me I was crazy, but I was really passionate about the problem they were solving, which was helping professionals build careers in technology. So we were training professionals in the technical skills they needed to build a career in the digital age. So web development, digital marketing, user experience design, and that's how we met. And I first got introduced to venture capital at the time because that was the type of investment that General Assembly took. So we raised venture investment um, and used that to grow quickly. And that's how I moved to Asia um, because we raised a round of funding and wanted to be a global business. And so moved to Hong Kong and was working on building up our company there. And through that process, I ended up getting into venture and in, back into investing more from an entrepreneurial mindset, which is part of what I think makes me a little bit different in the context of people who are career investors. Uh, I saw a gap in the market and there was a lot of investment flowing into education technology in the US, but there was nobody doing the same thing on the other side of the world. And so that's why I decided to get into venture because I felt like there was a market need that I could fill. Um, so that's that's how I got started in, in venture capital, although I guess my investor roots sort of uh, began a lot earlier in a way. I mean, that I mean, I remember 2012, 2013 when we first met um, and and it was the first time I heard about General Assembly and, and I love the idea of it being able to retrain professionals or upskill them with engineering um, a tool set so that they could you know, be able to fill the jobs that, that really need need to be filled. Can you tell us a bit more about your time, really like building a startup, working in the startup and, and building out their Asia presence? What was that experience like and, and how did it inform your, your investor role down the, down the road? It was amazing. It was so exciting 
For me, being in finance, pure finance, when I started my career, it felt like I was seeing the world in black and white. And it was very two-dimensional. There was one way to be successful, and that's how you had to do it. And either you did it or you didn't. And it was very cut and dry. But when I joined the startup world, it felt like the world was going to three dimensions. And all of a sudden, it was in color because everything that there, like everything was an opportunity. There were so many problems to be solved, and I just had to use my mind in ways that I never had to when I, when there was such a clear cut path forward. And I just really enjoyed that the magnitude um, of the problems that we were solving and the creativity that you could use to be successful was really really invigorating for me. And on top of that, at General Assembly, we had a really strong mission and that was helping professionals pursue work that they loved. And that was something that felt so important to me. It motivated me every day and ultimately allowed me to connect with amazing people like you who, if I had showed up on day one and said, here, buy this product, that's a completely different conversation versus showing up and saying, hey, here's this problem I'm trying to solve. Would you like to work with me on that? So I learned the power of being mission driven and how exciting that was, how energizing it was and how much it impacted my ability to be successful in what was otherwise a really challenging task, right? To set up this business, a new type of business in a completely different place um, and culture. So I think I still carry that through to how I invest today because there are a lot of investors that are really only motivated by money and for me, that was never enough. Um, so I like to solve big problems. I love what, what you talked about in terms of dimension, right? That's, that's the most exciting part of any job when it can offer you multi-dimensions, um, whether it's purpose, whether it's the ability to create, to serve, to impact. And of course, at the end of the day, to be sustainable. But that's not the only, that's not the only metric of success. Um, going back to kind of General Assembly, how did you segue from General Assembly into, into your investing role? One of the most amazing things about the experience at General Assembly was it was my job to build a strong network of talented people. And when I reflect on my career as an investor, but also just my career in general, I don't think I fully understood at the beginning of it how important people were going to be. And so building a network of talented people that share your values and share your mission is the most important asset that I built during that time. And it's ultimately what led me into venture. So I was meeting all of these amazing entrepreneurs as well as meeting a lot of really interesting investors. And that's how I met Titus, who was my co-founder at Fresco, and how we started working together. So it really wasn't, if you build a network of people that share those values and that mission, you'll often find the best opportunities come to you instead of you going after them. And so it was a case where it was never my plan to get into venture, but Titus knew what I was doing and knew what I cared about and approached me about the opportunity to start investing together. 100%. I think, you know, if I, my, my recollection of, of you, Allison, when, when you first came to Hong Kong was you parachuted in Hong Kong and within like 
a month maybe like you had the network in in place <laughs> business and and like you said i think you know regardless of, of what we're working on having the right people in place and i love how you connected that with values like people who believe in the same things to work together on. um and on that note what do you look for in a network or what do you look for in the values of the people that you surround yourself with i think that would be really helpful for, for folks who are thinking about building up this network in order to to possibly become an investor and entrepreneur down the road it's interesting to me because having moved to different cities several times over the course of my career i was in new york i was in boston for college and then new york and then hong kong and then tokyo and then now in san francisco and networking has somehow become a an activity that people talk about and so i kind of believe building a network is something that you almost it's you do it best when you don't mean to do it in a way because otherwise it becomes very very transactional so when i look for people that i want to bring into my network there are people that are very mission driven they have a problem that they want to solve and they have a certain level of creativity and sense of service so they actually do come to every conversation thinking what can i learn from you how can i help you and then how does that advance us to our common goals and so i i think that's a really important thing that you can suss out pretty quickly in an early conversation of like what does this person care about how do they treat me are they interested in adding value to what i'm doing and are they thinking creatively about how we might be able to collaborate because i have a lot of conversations with people that just want one thing they want funding or they just want a connection to some other investor and those are not the kind of people that i want in my network because i know that it they probably are just approaching everybody that way and they don't think about relationships as deeply and thoughtfully as i believe you need to think about them in order to be successful in the long run so So, yeah, that would be my answer to that question. I mean, that is so insightful. I remember, you know, I, I used to walk into meetings with you and you'd have your moleskin and your pen and you'd write everything down. <laughs> oh my gosh, Allison's writing it all down. Okay, maybe I should write it all down too. And I love <laughs> what you talked about in terms of the learning aspect, right? Like it's it's very, very off-putting to come into a meeting where it's very transactional and it's very one way or or it's, it's zero sum. Um, but it's always exciting to meet a person who who comes in to talk about why they're passionate about something or what they're really angry about and they want to like fix or 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 solve for it. Um and you're right. These are the people that we'd hang out with even if we didn't work together or we didn't invest in each other because at some point we'd find a way to collaborate because we're just interested in each other's sort of ideas and and sense of service to their community and 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 uh, you know their 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 network. So you talk about cities going in from Boston, New York, um Hong Kong, Tokyo and back to San Francisco now. So what was that journey like, you know, moving around the world and and finding new opportunities? Uh how did you search for those opportunities and 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 what was the experience like? It was incredible. I didn't grow up traveling, so for me, I really set the goal of wanting to live abroad and put myself in an environment where I was removing myself from everything that I knew. I saw it as a process of self-discovery to see what I was capable of, to see what made me me versus 
just what how I ended up kind of reacting to my environment growing up. So that was always a goal for me. But the most interesting thing during that process that I discovered was that no matter how hard you expect moving to a new place to be, it's actually way harder. <laughs> and you get there and you don't know anybody, you are completely a fish out of water, you're starting from ground zero. It's very challenging, but I do think the process was incredibly empowering because it reminded me what I was capable of and now I know that I'm capable of building something from nothing, which has always been my aspiration as an entrepreneurial spirit is to build something from nothing. So it was it, it was an incredible experience. I absolutely wouldn't trade it for the world. I think it has brought me a level of perspective and creativity and empathy that you never get if you just stay in one place. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I think there's a lot of really interesting points of intersection across those different ecosystems. There's there's patterns that you can see of the timing of when things kind of happen or take off. But at the same time, there's, uh, I think it gave me a new appreciation for localization um, because each place really is different and people have a different culture and mindset. And so you have to, um, I think, learn that and then figure out how to work within it if you're going to be successful in a new place. I, I have heard of other, you know, women in investing talk about a similar idea of putting yourself in a position where you're outside of your comfort zone in order mm -hmm. to learn about things that you don't know and also, like you said, self-discovery. Um, and, and I love what you said about empowering. Like when you start from zero and start with nothing and discover that you can, you discover that, mm -hmm. hey, there, there's a lot more I can do with, with very little resources. Um, what led you back to San Francisco? Like you, it's almost like full circle now. Like what led you to San Francisco, was it two, three years back? Yeah, it's been a couple years now, which is pretty crazy to think about how how um, fast time goes by. But I decided to move to San Francisco because I found myself several years into what was appearing to look like a career in venture capital. And a big motivating factor for me in venture has always been changing it because I do think there's a lot about it that is very old school, that lacks diversity and creativity of thought, and that if we're going to unlock true innovation, we need to make it accessible to everybody. And that was always a really motivating factor for me, but at the same time, I started to realize that there was a lot about venture that I didn't understand from a systemic level. And I truly believe that if you want to change something, you have to understand it. And I knew the best way to do that was to move to San Francisco and, uh, you know, go work on Sand Hill Road and really understand the ins and outs of how traditional venture capital funds work and why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley and, um, and figure out kind of how I wanted to change it from there. So that was a big part of it um, for me. And I also think there's a time in your life where you want to be closer to your family. And I had this amazing experience being in Asia, but my family was very far away. And 
that was difficult for me too. And while I like to think I'm a superhuman, uh, um, you still need your people. And so it was time for me to come back. Got it. I, I'm, I'm curious about changing venture capital. I, I 100% agree with you. There's a lot about it that is very old school. And and there are times, you know, we, we must question, you know, the things that worked before, do they still work now? What are some of the pieces of the puzzle that you think could be open to evolving? One piece I'm really interested in right now is what we discussed before, which is networks. And venture is a game where you're investing in companies and people with a very, very long list of unknowns and a very, very long time horizon that just exponentially increases the number of unknowns when it comes to what might the outcome be of that business and therefore your return on your investments. So I think it's very natural for people to invest in others who are like them or people that are already part of their network or um, you know, if you you basically blindly invest a large amount of money in someone, it's helpful if they live in your neighborhood or their kids play with your kids on their soccer team and you see them every weekend anyway. And there's this level of um, transparency that comes with that. And so I believe if we're going to make venture capital accessible to minorities, women, people that aren't the classic tech bro, who you know grows up grows up on you know at Stanford and, and Sand Hill Road, then we need to figure out how to expand those networks and how to help everyone kind of build powerful networks that can lead them to that type of capital in the long run. And ultimately that's the type of network that will make companies successful as well, right? I mean you need more than just money. You need people that can refer you to great people to hire and people that can refer you to customers. And so I think networks are a bigger part of success than people usually recognize. Um, and they're certainly a huge part of how venture works. And so I really wanna try to crack that open a little bit um, if we're gonna change it in the long run. That is so exciting to hear. I think cracking this, this network challenge, like, you know, we live in the two pockets of the world where there is a lot of capital and a lot of talent. Um, whether it's the Bay Area nearby San Francisco or the Greater Bay Area nearby Hong Kong, Shenzhen. And you're right, there's actually a lot of homoge homogeneity here because people are quite similar, so they'll come up with the same problems and have the same solutions. Um, what other types of networks you, you, um, should, we, should we look further into? You talked a bit about women, you talked about minority. Um, tell us more about what you're thinking there. Yeah, I mean, I've just been really fascinated by this emerging uh, study of networks. Network science is actually an emerging category of research, understanding how these connections can support success in the long run. It's also, um, I think, a big factor for just mental health generally is having a strong network of supporters and relationships of what I call regenerative relationships. So people that make you better 
uh, in challenging times. So I think building personal networks is just as important as building professional networks. But there's also an element to diversifying networks, which can be really important. So for example, if you think about the crisis that's happening across the world right now, it's a risk that not many people really anticipated. And if you only surround yourself with people that have the same life experience or the same perspective or the same problems as you, they might not be able to say, they, they, then it might be very difficult to predict some of these challenges down the road. But for example, having spent time in Asia, wearing a face mask and you know all of the, the previous sort of SARS crisis, um, there was a level of respect for a pandemic uh, that I think the U.S. just had never experienced in, in this lifetime. And so anyone that had those connections or that experience saw the current crisis in a different light. So there's a lot of value to diversifying because you can see risks in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. Yes, and, and this connects back to kind of your, your point about being local and being global um, and, and also you know, investing in, in mainstream, but also diversifying that investment pool. At the end of the day, that's what capital does, right? It helps us fuel a future we want to live in. And, and now more than ever, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of a world do we want to live in? And, and how do we be a part of the, the building blocks to making that happen? Um, I'm also curious about how you mentioned about unknowns. Investing is probably 80% about unknowns, especially in early stage. How do you manage unknowns and and how do you manage those moments when when founders want to give up or, or when you want to give up? There's so many unknowns all the time. If we learned anything from 2020, it's that you you can't even imagine the things that are gonna happen or go wrong. And so it's not an easy thing to manage for sure, whether you're a founder or you're an investor. Um, and I think there's different types of unknowns. There's, there's certainly circumstantial unknowns, like, you know, a global pandemic or crazy wildfires in California right now. Um, and those you can't control, but what you can control is how you react to them and what you do with them. And one option is to shut down and give up. And another option is to adapt and evolve and figure out how to turn some of those challenges or changing circumstances into an opportunity. And so I think the most important thing is surrounding yourself with people that have a similar mindset of innovation. And, you know, I don't think changing course means giving up. Um, and I've made a lot of pivots in my life and changes and um, I see them as new opportunities as opposed to um, you know, a failure in any way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and, you know, echoing your word previously, regenerative, right? Not only do we have to work with people who are regenerative, we have to be regenerative ourselves. And, and like you said, pivoting and being creative and being multidimensional, those are the, all the elements we look for in the founders we invest in. So, you know, these are also things we have to emulate ourselves and, yeah, I mean, you know, in the beginning of the year, we called all of our portfolio companies and we're like, guys, the world's changing. We are about three months ahead of you. We know what's going to hit. So get ready to adapt, like adapt or die. This is this is this is how ruthless the industry is. But it also, I think, in a way rewards those who are adaptive. 
Um, totally. We're talking about things that I feel like we didn't learn much at school. Could could you maybe like you know just tap slightly back into into the past? Like, what did you study in college? And and if you could go back in time now and and sort of give some advice to to your 18 year old or 21 year old self, what would you recommend? I studied economics and film studies, which I don't know that I've used any of that content ever again after I completed my final exams. But what I did use was, and I think that the things I really learned in college were about the importance of a network, the importance of relationships, and the importance of mindset. And being in a liberal arts environment where everyone is committed to learning, everyone is operating from a place of curiosity. That is such a valuable thing, no matter what you're doing in life. And so I think between the that mindset and the network that I built um, and the things that I learned about myself, those are certainly the most valuable pieces of my education. If I could look, if I could go back and give myself advice, I would tell myself to not feel pressured to specialize. I felt a lot of guilt about my level of experimentation. I actually started as a math major, and then I switched to psychology, and then I switched to art, and then I ended up doing economics, which I felt was a, a combination of all of that. But I think there was this illusion that. I should know what I wanted to do with my life, or that I should have a direction, and that I need to pursue a, a very specific direction if I was going to be successful. But um, I, I don't think that's been the case. I don't think it will be the case. And um, you know, the average amount of time anybody has a job today is about 18 months. So there's a lot of opportunity for experimentation, and the ability to think a few steps ahead is much more valuable than the ability to try to drive down a singular path. That is so, so valuable. Um, you know, in the times when prof having a professional life for 30 years, you know, people needed to know what they wanted to be and be that for, for their whole career. But that is no longer. Um, and and experimentation and, and, and being creative and looking for new pathways and possibly preparing yourself for a job that doesn't exist yet. That's that's mm -hmm. kind of where we're at now. Um, and I'd love to connect that with your current investment sort of thesis. Tell us more about what you're, you're investing in and and where where you see you know the world going. Mm. So I've really committed my career in investing to the future of work. Um, and it's an area I've been focused on for quite a while now. And the reason why I chose it as the area that I really wanted to focus upon was for three reasons. Um, it's really big, it's really broken, and it matters a lot. So when you think about how big it is, I mean, every company spends about 70% of their budget on their workforce. And yet it's so broken that 70% of people are so unhappy at their jobs that it spills over into their personal relationships. And it matters because think about it, you're 
only gonna, the only thing that you're gonna do more than work in your lifetime is sleep. You spend 90,000 hours at work. And so it matters at a big macro level because it, it is so expensive and so ubiquitous, but it also matters at a personal level because you feel it every single day. And so I felt that if there's an area where I wanna have a little bit of an influence, that's definitely it. Um, and when I first started investing in the future of work, I started out very specific, being on, being focused on education and upskilling and reskilling. And over time found that that level of focus was a little bit too narrow because it meant there were only so many great opportunities. Um, and so then I widened my scope and kind of took a step back and built a thesis around what does the future of work look like in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I came up with the concept that I use as a framework today, which is called the five D's which is that the future is the future of work is digital, distributed, data-driven, dynamic, and diverse. And so I invest in technology that's advancing toward that future. Um, and so I was at a large kind of generalist fund for a while doing that, but also started to see that in a world where venture capital is becoming a bigger and bigger industry and there's a lot of money out there and it's actually incredibly competitive to try to get access to the best investment opportunities. And so in order to be successful, you do need to have a pretty specific focus. So I've really honed in on the relationship between the employer and the employee. And so today, Semperverance, we invest in companies in workforce technology and healthcare technology, the financial technology that are selling to and through the employer to help them manage their employees. So um, that's kind of the, the circular route to where I am today. But at the end of the day, it's really the future of work that um, gets me up in the morning. Big, broken, and matters a lot. I, I love that initial kind of framework to like find you know what to be working on and and the and of the five d's you mentioned um could you maybe like highlight one or two that you think are, are that that we should know more about you know whether it's you know the diverse piece or the distributed piece sure uh the distributed piece is really interesting it was obvious to me when i was living and working in asia but investing in companies mostly in the u.s and europe and uh, we're only seeing the world move more in that direction. So um, when I say distributed, I, I certainly mean from a geographic perspective, um, you know, remote work is becoming more and more popular and um, definitely see that as the future, but it's also becoming more distributed um, over time. So to the point that I was making before, people don't stay in a job longer than 18 months anymore. It's very rare for that to happen. And so, careers are not linear progressions. They're these sort of portfolio careers that people build over time across multiple roles, but also you're seeing people um, take on multiple jobs at once. So even in the knowledge space, I'm uh, seeing a lot of really talented people leave full-time roles and instead set up their own consulting um, arrangement where they can work with a bunch of different clients at one time. So um, that distributed element is just sort of related to the broader unbundling of what we've traditionally thought of as a job or a career. Um, 
then the other one to touch upon, which I actually added as a result of COVID is this dynamic piece. Mm. Um, you know, there's a great quote and I can't remember where I heard it, but it used to be that the big eat the small, but now it's the fast that eat the slow. And I just think that ability to adapt in real time is more valuable than ever and has been certainly highlighted by COVID. So even within large corporations, um, they're trying to think about how to iterate more quickly and how to be more dynamic in their budgeting, their you know, uh, sales strategy, et cetera. So um, that's a big, big area of focus. The fast eat the slow, definitely, definitely, yeah. and and I think that's a that's a really good good highlight with the dynamic piece, and and individually or on a, on a corporate level, you know that that's that applies. Um, you talked about how this really matters, so I I have great faith and and know that what you're investing is going to be amazing, and and you're going to impact a lot of lives. So let's look into the future five, 10 years from now, when your investments are coming to fruition, what kind of a world do you want to see? What, what what kind of careers do you expect people to have? What will it look like for, for someone to have a good life, a good job? I think there will be a lot more independent work. Um, so I have a, a theory about the rise of the extra small businesses which is um, individuals building careers as sort of entrepreneurs themselves. And that doesn't mean that you need to be a venture-backed business necessarily, but it could mean having your own freelance marketing business where you're making three or four times what you would make in a traditional full-time role. Um, and you have a lot more flexibility to work on the things that are aligned with your values as well as flexibility throughout the day to do other things or work whenever works for you. I really believe the future is moving in that direction. Um, I also believe that in the future, people will be reskilling and upskilling on a regular basis. So sure, I think the four-year degree will take a long time to go away, but people will also be uh, engaging in new types of education on a really regular basis so that they can get to that next step. Um, so I really, I think the world really will be um, those five Ds. <laughs> I, I would love to, to, to look forward and live in that world where not only is my job, but my children's job to, to embrace the, the, the five Ds you talked about, um, especially the dynamic piece, because that's what makes life interesting. And when we have good work, then we, we're able to self-actualize. And, and like you said, it spills over to the relationships we have in life. Um, last question for you, Allison. So what's the best part of your job? What do you like most about what you do? Okay, I can't just pick one. I have to pick two. I, my first answer is definitely all of the passionate, curious, talented people that I get to meet as part of my core job, right? Like it is my responsibility to go find amazing people doing amazing things. And that is so energizing to me. Um, and I think the second piece is something for people who are thinking about getting into investing to really consider. I really enjoy the fact that venture is the best of both worlds. I get to be part of a team of great people, but I also am able to operate very, very independently and creatively. 
So that's uh, something that fits my personality and mode of working where I like to just be off, you know, thinking about the next thing and meeting people and doing um, things my way, but coming back to a team that is um, cohesive around a mission and the strategy and values. I really think that's the best of both worlds. Allison, thank you so much. The sharing today itself was dynamic, regenerative, and multidimensional. <laughs> and I think people will learn so much from you. Thank you so much for your time, Allison. Thanks for having me.